Fascinating people, fascinating places. On the 8th of August, 1974, Richard Nixon's scandal-plagued tenure in the White House came to an end. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour in this office. Nixon's downfall was caused by his involvement in attempts to cover up the illegal break-in at the Democratic National Convention's headquarters in 1972. It was a crime that had been directed by Nixon's associates. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. Despite initial denials, Nixon's involvement in the cover-up came to light when his own audio recordings from the White House implicated him in the affair. The way to handle this now is for us to have Walters call back and just say, stay the hell out of this. In this episode, I speak to an expert on the topic, Professor Bruce Shulman of Boston University. He's the author of three books, From the Cotton Belt to the Sun Belt, Lyndon B. Johnson and American Liberalism, and The 70s, The Great Shift in American Culture, Politics, and Society. Nixon ran for president against John F. Kennedy in 1960. It was a close election, but afterwards various Republicans made claims that there had been widespread fraud in places such as Texas and Chicago, and this had not only benefited Kennedy, but assured his victory. Do you think the perception of malfeasance among Democrats could have influenced Nixon's decision to use the so-called Dirty Tricks campaign at the time of Watergate with an eye on the upcoming election of 1974? If you're suggesting that the dirty tricks regime that Nixon put in place after he became president was sort of a reaction to or a response to the experience of the 1960 election, then you're sort of starting that story too recently. Because you have to understand that it wasn't a response to that because Nixon had, in fact, practiced dirty tricks in his Senate campaign, in his first run for Congress against Jerry Voorhees, in which he used a whole variety of smear techniques and dirty tricks and undercover operators in his campaign against Red Helen, Helen Gage, and Douglas when he won his Senate seat from California. I think the, the idea that somehow that Nixon was just being reactive and that he had said they did it to me and so now I'm going to do it to them sort of misses the story. If you want to defend Nixon, then I think you could take that whole history and say that those kinds of dirty tricks were not something that was unusual in American electoral politics and that we can find many instances of them. But certainly... Nixon was a pioneer in developing some of those tactics. Also, when we look at then some of the personnel who actually carried out the dirty tricks in the Nixon White House and some of Nixon's closest advisors, many of them had come through student government at the University of Southern California, where they had practiced what Donald Segretti famously called rat fucking in their 
college politics, student politics. And so also they had experience with those kinds of behaviors long before they got to Washington, D.C. And on Watergate, the specific situation there, Nixon wasn't directly involved in, but obviously he had fostered an environment where his affiliates did things of that nature. How did he foster that environment in the White House to where people were going around doing all these kind of outrageous and illegal activities as just par for the course? I think that's a really good question. I think there are a couple of different aspects of it that we might want to look at. One is just to sort of go back to the question of Nixon's specific culpability for the Watergate break-in, the break-in at the offices of the Democratic National Committee at the Watergate, not the cover-up, not the wider sort of web of sordid and illegal activities that came out in the unraveling of the Watergate scandal and so on, but just Watergate. Yes, you're absolutely right that Nixon had no direct knowledge of that particular caper or operation. But I will point out, I mean, the thing about the Nixon presidency is that we have a set of sources that we have for no other president and will never have for any other president, which are those White House tapes. Yes, it's true that presidents from FDR through Nixon all did some recording, but none of them had the voice-activated system in many rooms that just collected as much raw conversation as Nixon had. And so Nixon, a few months before the Watergate break-ins, is talking to H.R. Haldeman and Henry Kissinger and asking about the Huston plan, which under those auspices the Watergate breakout took in. And he specifically mentions breaking into the office of Larry O'Brien, the chairman of the Democratic National Committee. So does he order it? Not quite. Does he have advanced knowledge of that specific break-in? No. But he had actually mentioned this as something that they ought to be be doing and thinking about, which obviously must have influenced some of his staff. But then, so that's sort of the specific, but then I think to get to your really important question about the broader context, I think here, what was key really was the Vietnam War, the anti-war movement, and Nixon's fractious relationship with the press. And that is something that really did come out of the elections of 1960 and 1962, when Nixon was convinced that the press disliked him, was biased against him, wouldn't report fairly what he said, and undermined him. He became obsessed with leaks in the White House. And of course, one of the first of these illegal operations he set up was the so-called White House plumbers, because plumbers were going to plug leaks. And they got involved in That sense that the press was our enemy, that whistleblowers were our enemy, that bureaucrats were our enemy, that members of Congress were our enemy, kind of justified a whole variety of bizarre and sometimes illegal activities. So, for instance, the plumbers broke into the offices of Daniel Ellsberg, the the famous former Pentagon official who had leaked the Pentagon papers to the Washington Post and New York Times, they broke into his psychiatrist's office with the idea of trying to find damaging information that they could use to discredit Ellsberg. I think that Nixon sensed that the press was against him, that he had to stop leaks. His sense that there was kind of a culture war going on 
with the anti-war movement over the Vietnam War, all of these to him justified kind of a wide range of activities. And then we also have to say that what Nixon did informally and without legal authority in the White House, things very similar to that were being done by the FBI and the CIA in terms of their infiltrating anti-war movement and civil rights movement and, you know, having undercover agents and doing break-ins and so on. And Nixon knew about all of these things. So it might be fair to say that for him, even though he didn't have the legal authority to do it within the White House, that those didn't seem so far out there as they might to us looking back on it now. When they started investigating Watergate, it was led by the FBI, but Nixon apparently tried to have the CIA interfere in that investigation. So does that suggest then the CIA were like-minded individuals who thought, right, you know, Nixon's great, we want to support him? Or was it more of a case that they were almost just kind of freelancing, out-of-control, hire-for-hit-type organization who just would get involved in any murky enterprise they were assigned to? There's a couple of different aspects to it. And some of it has to do with personalities, almost, as well as the different institutional cultures. There are a couple of reasons why Nixon thought that the CIA would be much more willing to play along with him than the FBI, and that he could use the CIA to turn off, basically, the FBI's investigation of Watergate. One is that there were former CIA employees involved in the Watergate break-in, most obviously E. Howard Hunt, who had been a CIA agent. The CIA understood that their own assets were involved. In fact, also some of the Cubans who were among the burglars had been involved in CIA activities to oust the Castro government before. So the CIA did have skin in the game. It understood that by trying to turn off the FBI investigation, it wasn't just protecting Nixon, but it was trying to sort of protect its own past and its its own secrets and its own assets. Also, at the beginning, the difference in the institutional cultures of the CIA and the FBI is that the CIA, which it had a series of directors throughout its short history since the late 1940s, the directors had been much more the appointees of and under control of the president than the FBI, which had had one director, J. Edgar Hoover, from when the Bureau of Investigation became the FBI all the way until Hoover's death shortly before Watergate. And so the FBI basically had a culture of independence. It was part of the executive branch but it operated independently and didn't really take orders from or follow orders from the president. Whereas Richard Helms, the director of the CIA, had been appointed just a few years before, the CIA tended to follow those kinds of orders more. So because they had skin in the game of not wanting their own agents and assets to be exposed, and because they were kind of used to following presidential orders, that was one reason why the CIA was more amenable to Nixon's sort of interference than the FBI was. Do you think that Nixon was someone who, in his own mind, 
believed in democracy, but felt that somehow the system had been so subverted he had to take these extraordinary steps to level the playing field? Or do you think he was just a straightforward autocrat who really didn't care and just felt that he was right and he wanted to be in charge through any means necessary? I think it's much more of the former than the latter. Nixon would reject the idea that he was a would-be autocrat that was only interested in you know, cementing and consolidating his own power. Certainly, for instance, there's no evidence to suggest that he ever thought about trying to serve in office more than two terms. I mean, I think he, he certainly wanted to remake the political landscape in his image and have lasting impact on it, but not in, in, in that kind of undemocratic way. Now, I think you have to understand a couple of things about Nixon's mindset and the times that he came to the White House. So I think that it's important to understand Nixon's background as a communist hater and communist hunter. I think that that gets obscured because, of course, in international relations, you know, Nixon, the the famous communist hater and communist hunter of the 1950s, the, the great Cold Warrior, was the person who made the opening to Red China, who initiated detente with the Soviet Union, who kind of thawed the Cold War. And Nixon, I think, was innovative as a strategic thinker, but he still believed that the communists and other radicals were playing a subversive role within the United States, and that the danger of subversion was real. He also thought that the Vietnam War, and especially the opposition to the Vietnam War, had kind of created a crisis of legitimacy in American society, and that that opposition needed to be put down. I think he would have described that not as anti-democratic, though from our vantage point, most of the tactics he pursued look anti-democratic. I think he would have understood it as extraordinary steps you need to take to preserve democracy in crisis, much as Lincoln suspended habeas corpus in the Civil War or FDR incarcerated the Japanese Americans during World War II. These are dark passages in the history of American democracy, but those presidents saw them as necessary in negotiating a crisis. And I think that Nixon saw what he did in similar terms. Back to the Watergate scandal, once it blew up, obviously the cover-up caused a lot of the lines of investigation and unraveled the bigger picture. Do you think conceivably, had he not tried to do the cover-up, that there's any way that getting a few individuals to take one for the team, kind of like the Iran-Contra scandal or something like that, I mean, was there another path that he could have gone down somehow to have survived this? without doing the whole cover-up routine, which obviously that strategy failed. To some extent, they tried it. One of the key features of the early stages of the cover-up, let's say from five days after the break-in, where Nixon basically starts the cover-up by putting the, try, getting the CIA to intervene to call off the FBI until the summer of 1973, when the Senate holds its, the Senate committee, the Urban Committee holds its, televised public hearings 
and we learn about the tapes in those hearings. In that first eight or nine months, a large part of the strategy had been to try to find a fall guy who would take responsibility for the cover-up. They certainly wanted John Mitchell, the former attorney general who had been the head of Nixon's re-election campaign, to be the fall guy. They tried to make John Dean, the White House counsel, be the fall guy. They just didn't manage that all that. First of all, Nixon was unwilling to make any statement of responsibility, even, you know, I'm sorry, some of my men went rogue. It was wrong. We were involved. He was kind of unwilling to do that. But certainly they did look for fall guys who could sort of take the blame and they could say, these guys did wrong and it stopped there. And John Dean recognized that he was being made the fall guy. And that's when he basically turned state's evidence and went ahead and became a witness testifying against Nixon. And that really, in some ways, was a turning point, made it hard for them to do that. But yes, I think a different approach. If at that meeting where the cover-up was launched, they basically had said, we're sorry, members of the campaign went rogue. They got involved in these illegal activities. We don't condone them. We're going to investigate what happened. Yeah, I think it certainly wouldn't have ended up the way it did, which is the forcing of Nixon from office prematurely. I think that's a an interesting counterfactual. I mean, we can never know for sure, but it's an interesting counterfactual. Now, something else that I was thinking about with regard to Trump in January the 6th, a large part of the Republican Party have sort of stood by him to varying extents. With Nixon, though, when this came up, that didn't happen, and ultimately he was forced to resign. Was there a different mindset back then to where there were stronger public principles? Or was there a factor with the Republicans where they were thinking, well, he's basically a lame duck president at this point anyway. We don't want to stick our necks out for this guy who's going to be out of office in two years, so we'll just do the right thing. And possibly, had he been a first-term president, maybe they would have seen it differently a la Trump. I don't see any evidence for that in the Nixon case. I mean, I think there are significant differences in the larger political environment in the country and in general and in the Congress in particular. <laughs> and some of those are obvious. One thing we should say is that most Republicans stood by Nixon for quite a while, but then it just became Nixon's culpability became clear after the tapes were released and a large number of prominent Republicans in the Senate went to the White House, including Barry Goldwater, the 1964 Republican presidential nominee, and basically told Nixon that the jig was up, that they weren't going to support him. Several Republican members of the House Judiciary Committee voted for the articles of impeachment. A couple of things are different. One was the, the parties were not ideologically sorted the way they are today with almost all Democrats on the liberal side of the spectrum and all Republicans on the conservative side of the spectrum. There were liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats. Partisanship was not as hot and extreme, either in terms of in the country, certainly not. In fact, you know, the early 1970s were probably the least part in terms of the partisan identification 
of Americans, one of the least partisan periods in American history, the trough of a decline of partisan attachment that had been going on since the 1910s before the return of partisan polarization, which begins really in the late 1970s. By the time we get to Trump, the parties are sorted ideologically, partisan attachments are intense, and so members of one party deserting president of their same party is highly unlikely. And I suppose the one way of backing up that argument is to say those changes were already much enforced by the late 1990s when the Republican House impeached Bill Clinton and no Democrats voted to convict and remove him, much like very few Republicans did so with Trump. So I think the hardening of those partisan attachments, the sorting of partisanship, party identification, and also the end of the Cold War, because almost the entire American establishment, certainly almost every, I mean, a handful of Cold War critics in Congress, but almost every member of Congress supported the Cold War struggle against Soviet communism, that maintaining a certain kind of unity in Congress was an important imperative. And so I think that helped create bipartisan support for Nixon's removal. Ordinarily, I would have thought that if you have a president who has to resign in this kind of scandal, that it would negatively impact his party going forward. But I read in your book on the 1970s that, in part because this caused people to lose faith in the government, that in some senses this actually helped the Republican Party. It's important to distinguish between the short term and the kind of medium to long term. So in the immediate aftermath of Watergate, the Republican Party takes a bath at the polls. They are associated with Nixon and Watergate. And in the 1974 midterm elections, they are crushed. And not only do the Democrats return huge majorities in both houses of Congress and win governorships, but Democrats win in places where normally they would never win before. And those so-called Watergate babies are, you know, responsible for some important, if not long-lasting reforms, such as campaign finance reform, such as the Ethics and Government Act, which sets up independent counsel investigations of the executive branch, uh, such as the establishment of the House and Senate intelligence committees, so to oversee the use of institutions like the FBI and the CIA, etc. But, Joseph, you suggested the great message of Watergate was not you can't trust the Republicans or you can't trust Nixon, but you can't trust the government. You can't trust government. That kind of piled onto a loss of trust in government that had really been developing since the escalation of the Vietnam War. Its medium to long-term effects were to help the case for anti-government conservatives that government needed to be smaller, that it needed to be cheaper, that it needed to be more restrained. So the kind of long-term lesson of Watergate, you can't trust the government, redounded to the advantage of conservatives and Republicans, even if it was a conservative Republican government that had 
committed to the crimes associated with Watergate. That's sort of one of the ironies of Watergate in that it wasn't the only thing or the most decisive thing, but it kind of helped point toward the Reagan revolution and the rise of conservative republicanism in American politics. How important or unimportant, I mean, what effect, lasting effect, do you think Watergate as a scandal has had on U.S. politics? I think that's an interesting question, and it's a question that the answer might have been different 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, that as we move further in time from Watergate, that some of its effects have worn off. I think there are some important effects to think about. So, and I would maybe kind of divide them into three categories, institutional, media, and cultural. Institutionally, in the 20th century in the United States, scandals have sometimes led to important and lasting institutional changes, changes in the organization of politics and government, Watergate more so than any other. So we got congressional oversight of the intelligence agencies. Before Watergate, that was not the case. And that was why not just the FBI and the CIA went rogue, whether it was trying to assassinate Fidel Castro or the CIA being involved in Chicago during the Democratic National Convention when the CIA charters prohibited it from doing operations within the borders of the United States or the surveillance of Martin Luther King by the FBI. So now there are, you know, since Watergate, there's been congressional oversight of those intelligence agencies, and that is a lasting consequence. We still have the War Powers Resolution, which another consequence of Watergate that requires the executive to notify Congress within 48 hours if U.S. troops have been committed overseas, and then in order to extend that beyond 60 days, the Congress has to approve it. So the votes on the Iraq war, for instance, were in part of the war powers resolution. It hasn't had much of an effect on restraining the powers of the presidency, but at least it's there as a formal instrument. We still have the Federal Election Committee and federal regulation of presidential elections, some of the other institutional changes, like the independent counsel law, have gone off the books since then. But I think some important institutional changes that still last came out of Watergate. One of the perhaps more interesting effects has to do with the development of the adversarial relationship between the presidency and the press, especially charges of bias against the press and the way that the press kind of tried to combat those charges of bias, that led to a number of changes in the way the media operate. It led to a mainstream media that went out of its way to investigate scandal, personal, sexual, financial malfeasance, because that wasn't ideological or political, but became much more grand scared about reporting on politics and policy. And I think what that led to eventually was the giving up of the idea of a more or less impartial or objective press and the 
not only the acceptance of, but changes in laws like the Fairness Doctrine that allowed the flourishing of openly partisan, openly ideological media, which I think dominate the landscape ever since. So I think Watergate and the struggles between Nixon and the press that came out of Watergate had some lasting effects on the way media are organized. And then finally, one consequence of Watergate is that every scandal, just about every scandal, has had that suffix gate attached to it. We not only have scandals involving U.S. politics, whether it's Contragate or my favorite name was one of the names for the Clinton-Monica Lewinsky scandal was Fornigate, but political scandals in the U.K., South Africa, Poland, Argentina have had gate, and then even, you know, scandals in the entertainment and sports world. I normally live in Boston, Massachusetts, where we had deflate gate, Tom Brady and the footballs. At one Super Bowl show, we had nipple gate when Janet Jackson famously experienced the wardrobe malfunction. In this vague way, we can kind of see the cultural influence of Watergate in that that is kind of the lens through which we see scandal, it might mean that we don't take scandal very seriously. And certainly one of the lessons of Watergate that upset the people who were involved in exposing Watergate and ousting Nixon was that a general reaction was, they all do it, Nixon just got caught. So I think that kind of acceptance of or downplaying of scandal in public life is maybe what we mean when we just attach gate to every other scandal that happens no matter how petty well stone the flaming crows it's time for dan to do the harry Watch out for the next podcast and follow all Dan's activities at www.danielmainwaring.com. Fascinating people, fascinating places. The weekly podcast available on all major platforms. I definitely knew I was going to be an astronaut. That coronavirus is a work of God. There's a huge conspiracy at work. There were a number of spies. It straddles fantasy and reality. It ain't so funny once the rabbit got the gun. Oh, uh, here's the way that about. You're not-